0: Trail fam, welcome back to the show. Of course, I am your host, Dylan Bowman, here today with Zoe Rome, who's returning for I think her third or fourth appearance on the show. I just can't get enough of Zoe. She is one of the top writers and journalists in the space, and a person who, whenever she writes anything, I make a point to read it. Zoe is, of course, the editor-in-chief at Trailrunner Mag the managing editor at Women's Running, and one of the hosts of The Outside Show, which was just renewed for a second season, as I understand it. And Zoe recently wrote two articles, which I've linked to in the show notes here, and that we center our entire conversation around today. Those articles were entitled The Rise of Indie Running Brands and How Fan Service is Changing Running Media. The two articles were fantastic and immediately inspired me to touch base with Zoe to schedule another podcast. Some topics we discuss were the nicheification of sports Brands and their utility as identity signalers. We talk about social media's role in empowering new brands in the running space. We talk about the direct-to-consumer business model and the counterintuitive importance of specialty retailers still in the sport. We talk about differentiation on a personal and brand level. We talk about fan service and media the state of journalism generally and the different business models therein. We talk about trade-offs that Zoe has to think about and make as an editor and a lot more. Zoe is an intellectual force. I always love chatting with her and I hope you guys enjoy today's show. Before we get to it, I have to remind you all that it is officially race week here at Free Trail HQ, the inaugural running of the Big Alta our brand new race in my neighborhood, Marinwood, California, in partnership, of course, with Daybreak Racing, 50K on Saturday, 28K on Sunday, and some of the best athletes in the country. A full live stream of both races, from our friends over at the Mountain Outpost. Make sure you tune in. Both that Saturday and Sunday broadcast will start at 7 30 a.m. Pacific time, with the races actually beginning at 8 a.m. both days. So we'll get started 30 minutes before the gun goes off. Corinne Malcolm and Adam Mary co host the 50K on Saturday, and then Corinne and Tim Tolofsen will host the 28K on Sunday. They're shorter races, the fields are super deep, and therefore the viewing experience should be sick. I'm telling you this course is so good and I am so excited to welcome everyone here to my neighborhood and the trails that I run every day. Of course, we'll be doing a trail gating on Friday to preview the action of the weekend. So make sure you tune in. It's basically what I'm getting at here. Again, all will be broadcast on the Mountain Outpost YouTube channel, which I've linked to in the show notes here. Hell yes. Enjoy the pie with Zoe. See you on YouTube this weekend. The presenting sponsor of the Free Trail podcast, of course, our friends at Speedland. We are fresh off the launch of the GSPDX, the sixth commission in the Speedland legacy, the beautiful homage to our original product, the SLPDX. But built on the GS platform in that trademark Speedland Green introducing the GSPDX. This product launch was the most successful to date by far. Honestly, we are happily surprised at the response from the community. We're already sold out of more than half the inventory. It's crazy. The brand is really taking off, and we are just getting started. The GSPDX has all that you have come to love from previous models, the double BOA fit system. Honestly, the best fitting shoe in the history of the world. HTPU midsole, drop in p midsole also, removable Carbotex carbon plate, Michelin outsole, the best fitting, most durable, most comfortable trail shoe I have ever worn. And your boy is getting serious again. I've got Hannah Allgood coaching me now. The comeback has officially started, so watch out for my speed lands on a start line soon. Visit runspeedland.com. Use code free trail 10 for 10% off your purchase of the GS PDX or any of the other models. Runspeedland.com. Use code free trail 10. Zoe Rome, welcome back to the podcast. Great to see you
1: yeah so great to be here dylan how are things in the roaring
0: fork valley i miss it how's winter been? oh my
1: gosh it's been it's been a great uh, not a great skiing winter but an amazing winter for running i guess i mean the trails are kind of snowed in i'm not much for running on snowy trails but it's been a pretty mild winter so just kind of been out here stacking some stacking some training bricks which doesn't feel too bad stacking the bricks Living,
0: in bring- the, the brand, living the lifestyle, you know, bringing exactly. everything together personally, professionally, glamorous
1: <laughs> winter training.
0: <laughs> cool. Well, I'm not here. We, we didn't invite you back on the podcast to talk about your training, though. Maybe we'll weave it in somewhere. The reason I wanted to have you back on the show and you've been here before is to talk about a couple of pieces that you published recently over on outside slash trail runner. Um, and They're two fantastic pieces. I'll make sure I link to them here in the show notes, but the two of them together just got my wheels turning in my brain and I felt like, hey, let's get Zoe back on the pod to talk all about it. The first one is entitled... The Rise of Indie Running Brands. The second is titled, How Fan Service is Changing Running Media. So let's start with the indie running brands. And I should say, you've been on the pod before. We've asked our traditional opening questions. So we'll get yeah. that out of the way here. We'll jump right to the meat of our conversation. a first-time caller anymore. Yeah, exactly, dude. exactly. So before we get to the content of the piece, again, the rise of indie running brands, I'd love to hear you talk about how this idea came about. What about the current brand landscape made you want to write a piece about it?
1: Yeah, so it kind of started by just noticing that I felt like I was dressing cooler when I was going running. I felt like I had more interesting things to wear. And it started and I was just like, is it just me or am I stylish AF as of late? And I looked around and I was like, well, it's not just me. Everyone else is dripping. And then it kind of got me thinking, like, my original hypothesis was that indie brands were thriving in the trail space. Um, And after additional sort of research interviews, looking at the data, I found out it was not confined to the trail space. I originally thought it was kind of a trail-related phenomenon because I felt like sort of the culture of trail running, which is so tied to this feeling of, like, independence and, like, we're all really individualistic and we don't have as much sort of, like, baggage of heritage coming into the sport as, like, road running with, like, years and years of sort of, like, fashion or style for want of a better word sort of in um in uh influencing where how people dress when they do that sport i was curious if like trail running because it's a little less beholden to heritage in this way and it's drawing from more different kind of inspirations in the fashion space, um, and if because it's smaller, if smaller brands had a better time succeeding because they were more immediately able to immediately sort of tap into the vein of what people wanted. Um, of course, that hypothesis immediately upended when I started interviewing both like folks who worked sort of at a higher level, like uh, Peter Abraham, and then even just talking with folks who worked at different brands. Um, Like when I interviewed folks at Bandit and at Rabbit, they were immediately like, huh, that's interesting, but it doesn't seem true for us. Mm -hmm. So I think that, and this is true for, I think, some of my most interesting and motivating stories is they often start from a place of me being wrong about something. So this was an article where I just explored that I was wrong, that this was a trend that was confined to trail running and was more tied Yes to running, but again, looking at sort of Peter Abraham, incredible marketing professionals input on this piece. It's something that we're seeing across every sport.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny and we'll get to Peter and all those things that you just mentioned here in a second, but while we're on the subject... I'm always watching brand stuff across a lot of different sports. And there's a really interesting example right now in golf with Tiger Mm. Woods' new brand. Obviously, after he famously represented Nike for 25 or 30 years, branching out now, starting his own brand called Sunday Red. And you're right. This phenomenon is now... Evident in lots of different sports and lots of, di- of different subcultures at the b- very beginning of your article you talk about the importance of signaling and yeah. as humans we want to outwardly portray something about our character so talk about signaling and, and how brands fit in with that fundamental human phenomenon.
1: Yeah, I think this was something that, again, sort of like my understanding of it started um, with trail, and then I've sort of expanded outwards as I become more familiar with the running landscape generally. But, you know, my eyes are open on the start lines, and I kind of see, like, and I think about why I wear what I wear when I go running, and I'm curious about what other people do as well. I'm always really interested in how we perform our identities, like how we perform being ourselves. Like when I put on, I'm wearing a plaid shirt and a vest, I'm like trying to signal that I'm an outdoorsy young professional who's laid back, but like engaged in their job. And like, these are things that even if we're not thinking about it on a super conscious level, we're communicating really core things about ourselves to people all the time. And I think that this doesn't stop when we're doing athletics, and in fact, can kind of be even intensified in some spaces, particularly like trail running and running. Um, I think another thing that was another thread that I was really interested in pulling on in the piece is that a lot of Uh, The running has exploded as a sport, trail running particularly. There's more and more people coming in all the time. And so I think we're seeing two kind of signals break through, which is the person who's like, I've been here the whole time and I'm trying to show that I've been really connected and tapped into the core of the sport for a while. And then we're seeing this amazing new generation of younger and more diverse runners coming in saying, I am not tapped into the core of the sport and IDGAF about that core. And I'm really new and bright and exciting. And here's who I am. And I think that sort of that splintering communicates two really interesting things about the direction of the sport is there's people who really increasingly want to signify how identified they are with the sport. And then people who kind of want to play with that identification and signal that like, they're not just identified at the sport. They're also identified with other things. You know, I think that like we're seeing a lot of streetwear sort of inspiration come out in the trail and in the run space, which I think is really, really interesting of people showing that they're Um, traveling through spaces that aren't just like the sort of like GORP core super REI trends that we've seen in the past. And I think that like looking, I I just so fascinated at how these brands have really tapped into different um, vibes (laughs) in, in the space, like, When you see someone in full head-to-toe tracksmith, you immediately have sort of like a story about who this person is, and they're intentionally communicating that story to you, right? If you saw me in full, um, you know, full satisfy, you would immediately have a story about who I am. You would know specific things that I'm trying to communicate with you about what my relationship to this sport is, what my relationship to the outdoors is, what my relationship to conscious or conspicuous consumption is.
0: yeah it's so funny cuz it's kind of more relegated into lifestyle sports right <clears> you say in your piece like trail runners you want to you want to signal that you belong to this community whether you're on the trail or at the coffee shop or at the brewery or something where if you think about people who take part in big four sports basketball football, even like MMA and stuff. They're not showing up to the coffee shop wearing shoulder yeah. pads or shirtless or something like that. Right. But there's something about Ooh. these core lifestyle subcultures that become such an intertwined part of our personal identities. You talk about the pandemic and how that may have catalyzed the explosion of these new brands. So say a few words about that.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, again, really zooming out to look at sort of the macroeconomic factors that influenced why we're dressing the way we're dressing when we hit the roads and the trail. And I think it starts in a pretty far away place, which is, you know, during the pandemic it sort of influenced the economy and particularly fashion in some really interesting ways. Uh, first of all, we all as a culture swore off hard pants during the pandemic, which is a great decision and I stand by it. Um, athleisure completely exploded during the pandemic people started really, really investing in sort of like um, long-lasting comfort wear, such as like Lululemon um, exploded and, and has sort of been on the up and up for many years now. All birds has really exploded. And increasingly, we're seeing that people, instead of investing in like Chinos and loafers want to wear leggings. They want to wear joggers. They want to wear technical apparel, even when they're not rock climbing, recreating, trail running, whatever it is they do. Um, We're all sort of leaning into comfort and signaling that we are people of leisure and recreation, even when we're at work. Um, increasingly, I think another thing that we see sort of as a macro, uh, macro sort of factor in this is that like free time to recreate and exercise is increasingly a signal of status. So being able to wear some fancy running shoes when I'm at work signals something different about who I am as a person. Um, being able to wear like a Lululemon crop top that shows off my yoga arms or whatever signals something about my identity that we weren't previously seeing in workwear, And of course, like sort of what folks are um, permitted to wear at work has really relaxed since the pandemic. Some folks, I mean, I'm working from home now, but essentially we're seeing a huge explosion in athleisure. And this is driven by a couple different factors, sort of a, a, a shift in fashion overall um, from a practical place. And again, like sort of seeing that increasingly people want to bring different aspects of their identity so that we can really signal like, look at me, I'm such an individual. I'm not like every other desk monkey. I'm wearing some really cool Nike trail shoes to work like you can tell I have fun on the weekends.
0: I want to talk more about that differentiation component because I think it's so important to this conversation. But before we get to it, you mentioned Peter Abraham. He's a mutual friend of ours. And he was actually on my show and we talked about this thesis of nicheification of sports. And I think this is a subject that we'll come back to talk about when we go to the media part of the episode. Explain Peter's nicheification thesis for those who haven't heard and how is it relevant to this brand convo?
1: Yeah, I would really encourage everyone to go read his original medium post about the nicheification of sports because I think it is like sort of the best encapsulation of what we're seeing in a lot of different, places generally. And I feel like it's kind of become a guiding thesis that I'm using to investigate a lot of different questions lately. Um, But essentially, it's just sort of positing that every sort of subculture is becoming increasingly fractured. um, Because of the internet, because of access to media, instead of just being into trail running, I can get really into like, Punk rock, Portland based, like underground trail running. Like, I don't have to just be a part of this like mono culture of a niche. Like, it can be a niche of a niche, you know? And I think that that is something that's really driving how we consume and how we communicate who we are.
0: So, I pulled a quote that you included in the article. This is a quote from Peter Abraham. And as you mentioned, I'll link to his. Medium article here in the show notes also for people who wanna go down the rabbit hole. And Peter's great when it comes to brands. What he said is, while Nike had a bit of an attitude, the rest of the brands were plain vanilla. Now you look around at all these brands and they have different points of view and different perspectives, stories, and attitudes. In addition to Nike, he's sort of referencing, you know, the big older school players in the space like Adidas, Saucony Brooks, New Balance, etc. Counter positioning against some of these new players like the Satisfies, the Bandits, the Tracksmiths, the Speedlands, the Nordas, etc. And Peter and I were just texting today and he said he's working on a piece on his observations from the Olympic trials where he felt like Nike was invisible but Hoko was sort of taking over. We're almost like seeing this changing of the guard. He hasn't published this piece yet. I'll make sure to share it when he does. But an observation that he made that goes back to what you were just saying about the new generations of people, you know, Gen Z started coming up. He made the observation that like, you know, it's Hoka, it's on, it's Tracksmith, it's Rabbit, it's Bandit. You're not seeing as many as of these older school brands. And the commonality between the brands that seem to be succeeding is that they're like, whatever, less than 10 or 15 years old. And maybe that says something about the changing consumer. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that.
1: Yeah, totally. I think it's it is largely driven by changing consumers and also like a, another like sort of the less and maybe it's about the same amount of interesting, but a big change is sort of like that these companies are better able to access markets because of direct to consumer um, sales and also social media is just so much easier to find and build an audience that way. But again, we're really seeing that a lot of these are tapping into a younger and more div- uh, more diverse sort of core of runners. I think this is actually something that I hope we'll touch in when we touch on the, the media piece as well as they're sort of like a, um, a hunger, like a previously unsatisfied hunger. You know, um, female identified runners really wanted a brand that spoke to them. Wazelle saw a market opening and went in. Um, black runners really want a brand that speaks to them. Pioneers came in and is selling like really cool, like street, sort of street style influenced. Performance apparel marketed towards black runners, and I think that we're really seeing how that change in demographics opens up really interesting new market spaces for folks to succeed. I'd be curious to see if they can succeed at scale in the same way that On and Hoka have. Um, But again, like we're seeing folks who don't want to just wear the like sort of like neon color, like, um, like I guess like in cycling it'd be called friendly, like really kind of dorky apparel, but for runners people want to wear like the really cool, bright artist prints from Janji. They want to wear the really feminine and like floral, cute, like flatteringly cut waselle clothing. If they're really competitive, maybe they want to signal that they rocked the Berlin marathon with a tracksmith singlet. And I think in the piece, I say that these brands aren't selling shoes and singlets they're selling vibes. And these brands are incredibly savvy at tapping into what they see on social media and sort of feeding back into that with really interesting, um, niche offerings that really speak to a certain type of runner. And as more runners come into the space, obviously those people are going to want something that speaks directly to them, but people also want to define themselves in contrast to other people. Right. So like, maybe you're like the sort of like preppy new England tracksmith type, or maybe you're the opposite of that. And you want the super expensive pre-ripped satisfy cotton t shirt
0: Brands aren't selling shoes and singlets, they're selling vibes. Add a finer point to that because it's true in a lot of cases, right? The product quality is secondary to the brand and what it says about you, isn't it?
1: Right, it is. And it's not like they're poor Quality, But like when I, I could buy any singlet in the world, why don't I just buy like a $14 one from Amazon? It's like, well, because I want to look and feel cool. You know, I want it to say something about who I am as a consumer. I want to stand out or fit in in some key way. And these brands have gotten incredibly good at sort of reading various rooms and creating at scale um, products that speak to that. Right. And so like, they've really just gotten, I think, good at understanding what people want. And again, they don't just want like old running clothes. I mean, in a lot of ways they were like functional enough. Like there's been a few sort of like apparel developments in the past 10, 15 years that are genuinely meaningful with like, I mean, you know, finding different finishes or cuts or like fabric blends, but like the apparel space is not evolving incredibly rapidly, you know, like there's not a the ton of money. technology. <laughs> Yeah, yes. The technology is not, and this is something that we really see in the piece, especially when you're thinking of scaling these things up, is that technology is not a key driver, not even of shoes, right? For the core consumer, they're more interested in um, form over function. Yes, they want it to feel good, but it also really needs to make sense for who they are as a person. And increasingly, people want to communicate who they are through sort of consumer choices. I think one of the really fascinating findings that I saw in the demographic data was that Gen Z um, consumers have a really strong identification between who they are and what they consume, which is kind of uncomfortable for me because I'm always really skeptical of trying to collapse the human experience into the consumer experience. That's a weird space, but I think that there can be a lot of positives that come from like Understanding that consumers want to communicate their values through their consumer choices.
0: Okay, so keep going with that because in the piece you, yeah. you mentioned the example of John and their clean water initiative. So you could use that as an example to make this point.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, frequent, like I'm wearing, um, a Patagonia shirt and I can't deny that probably in some part of my brand, when I bought the shirt a few years ago, I was like, aha, like I like environment shirt likes environment. Um, and I'm trying to communicate something about like who I am as like an environmentally conscious millennial woman <laughs> when I buy this shirt um similarly with with Janji. um similarly with i think wazelle has done a really great job of this in like really sort of you know planting their flag in the like we support elite women we support women engaged or female identifying athletes in the sport of running and people really want a brand that says something about who they are like i i know that sometimes folks can even feel like like will feel sheepish about buying and wearing Nikes. They're like, well, I don't support everything Nike does. It, like I would like like someone on some level would expect the fact that you're wearing, you know, alpha flies to be an endorsement of everything that the company has ever done. But that is how increasingly consumers think: is that like what I wear is a real representation of who I am and what I believe. And I think this is something that you see increasing with younger generations, to some extent with millennials, but it is the most pronounced Gen Z consumers.
0: Okay, so uh, before we get to the social media aspect, it's interesting because if Peter Abraham's observation was in fact true at the Olympic Trials Marathon, and your observation is true in that it's more about form than function, right? I think Nike's shoes are like proven to be the best super shoes for the marathon, for example. And if Nike as a brand is viewed as being less relevant culturally, and therefore less represented on the feet of people participating in the Olympic trials marathon, that means that those people are maybe going into the race at a specific disadvantage using a product that more represents their values and their personality than something that would give them the best chance at finishing yeah quickly
1: i'd actually be really curious to see how this plays out like sort of um most of the data i'm dealing with is like big data sets it's not looking at like elites versus amateurs i'm looking at like everything like a lot of the data sets i looked at taken from the outdoor industry association it's including like walkers runners like very amateur athletes um i would suspect that people's choices are different like i would love a data set where i could like control for how many miles someone runs in a week like that would be fascinating to me um but i think that like at the elite side of the sport like technology is much more of a driver but again like you know in the last olympic cycle we saw nike they handed out a pair of shoes to everyone who qualified for the trials so like there is sort of this like leapfrogging of brands that i'm really interested in at the top of the game and i think that it's sort of like you're looking at sort of two parallel competitions being played out simultaneously like what's driving the elite like the sharp end of the support the sport and then like Who's vying for like the you know the more casual runner, the walker, the like outdoors person? And I think what's interesting, I mean, most of the economy is that latter person, is the like more casual, which is like kind of hard for me to wrap my brain around because I live in a bubble and everyone is obsessed with the outdoors in my immediate you know sort of like work life. Circle, So like, I have to always be really careful with my mindset around this, because like, I think I know more people that qualified for the trials than walk for fitness. Um, but that is what is driving most of these larger trends. I think that It would be, I think it would be interesting because I I think that that hypothesis would not hold up in the same way at the elite end of the sport. I do think it's interesting that we're seeing brands like Tracksmith come out with their super shoe. Um, And like, you know, even Allbirds has come out with like a carbon plated shoe, like a lot of brands that previously we're in a more lifestyle category. We're on the more scalable side of the thing are doing really interesting and cool stuff on the pointy end too. Like you're never going to sell as many super shoes as you would just like acute athletic sneaker um so why invest in the super shoe well will that get more people into your kit will that get more people on your website and you have to assume that if they're investing in this it's not just out of warm fuzzies for the sport that there is a play that they feel investing in the sharpened can have a trickle down effect of like well if we get a whole bunch of you know otq runners in our tracksmith super shoe then like maybe we can get a whole bunch of like enthusiasts and core runners that may be one day run walker gym folks into our shoe as well.
0: One of the brands that I've been observing personally that you referenced in the piece is Bandit Running based in, I think it's Brooklyn, New York. I had <laughs> dinner with their CEO, Nick West at TRE, and it seems like you interviewed him for the piece. And from what I understand, they're one of, if not the fastest growing apparel brands in running right now. So clearly they're touching on some sort of emotional or cultural vibe, to use your word, <laughs> in the sport. So maybe using them as, a, as an example, if there's anything that sticks out in your conversations with Nick, like what have they done well and, and what are their customers signaling?
1: Yeah, I think some things that really stuck out to me that kind of set Bandit apart is that in a few other running brands I spoke to, they really talked about how running specialty continued to be an important part of their strategy. Uh, not so with Bandit. They are really interested in showing up in person at events, um, but they sort. I asked them like, to what extent is like in person sort of stuff more important than social media? And they said that both were really important for them, which was kind of curious to me because you know going to mostly trail events, I hadn't seen a ton of like. Bandit pop up shops till I went to the Boston Marathon. are like, wow, these folks have a huge presence. Um, so I think it's really interesting to see that interplay between the direct to consumer and between the social first, and seeing that a lot of these brands that are successful, and I would define Bandit as successful still really put a primacy on showing up in the real world where runners are at marathons, at different races, um, at like putting on underground events in in Brooklyn, their home and in New York City, people still see getting together and connecting in the real world as being a key part of their strategy. Even if it's not in run specialty specifically, um, there is still a space where people want to like, Touch your clothing. They want to meet your salespeople. They want to see what it looks like on. And I think that it's really interesting that that continues to be a key component of some of the more successful indie brands is like, I didn't see a single one that was very successful that had like no real world presence.
0: So perfect segue, because I want to spend some time now talking about, in addition to the pandemic, the other major catalyzing force is the internet and social yeah. media. So say a few words about how internet and social media specifically have empowered these new disruptive players in the market.
1: Yeah, well, A, a lot of the, I mean, just every branch that I think I mentioned is so smart and has a really interesting sort of creative strategy that makes their stuff stand out. And I think that again, like one of the big trends is the direct to consumer. And I think a major point that I made in the piece that I, I think sort of comes out or is a theme that I'm excited to continue to pull on when we talk about media as well as you're starting to see like the big players pick up the tools of the little guys because they're seeing the strategies that these independent folks are developing are really, really powerful and can be wielded at scale. Um, So direct to consumer is a big one. I mentioned in the piece that um, Adidas is looking to make at least 30% of their overall revenue from direct to consumer, which is a huge, huge pivot for a brand like that. Um, Another thing, like you said, is social media. So a lot of these brands have really robust sort of like ambassador influencer presences. And increasingly Instagram isn't just a place where we share pictures of our avocado toast like we did, I guess, eight years ago. Um, Now it's like we encourage people to consume our lifestyles directly and indirectly. Um, I, I always find it so jarring when I see a runner I know and I'm like scrolling past their photo and like the little speech bubbles pop up with like the cost of like the socks they're wearing and the granola they ate and the blood tests they did and the hat they're wearing. And it's like, you can, Immediately quantify and buy the, the, this, like this person's entire sort of thing um with the with the touch of a button um but it does sort of like it helps really with like it spreads awareness and it gets smaller brands in front of bigger audiences and it really helps people connect with the audiences that they're most going to resonate with and not everything is going to be for everyone and increase it like the successful brands are not trying to be everything to everyone they have a very specific sort of demographic and audience that they're trying to sell to ensure they're likely trying to expand that, but they're tapping into exactly the people they want to reach. And they're using social media influencers um, in a really smart way.
0: I want to come back to the D2C conversation, because I think there might be an interesting tension here that's just popping into my head. But before we do so, let's go back to differentiation. Because yeah, The market has become increasingly fragmented with social media in a lot of ways. Society has also. Right. Because society Mm -hmm. yearns people, you know, average, normal people, independent of what sport they participate in, yearn for differentiation. And sometimes what sport they participate in is part of their differentiation. And it's getting harder to differentiate when everybody is observing each other on these digital platforms. And my, my feeling, my thesis is that artificial intelligence is only gonna make this worse because, you know, it's gonna make us not only need to differentiate from one another, but also differentiate from our robot overlords. <laughs> so any comments on on just like the the importance of differentiation on like a, almost like a human biological level?
1: Yeah, I think again, like, you know, and this was something that was originally part of my trail running hypothesis. And I wasn't able to uncover a lot of data to support this, but it is still a feeling that I have, which is that as a, as a, as a people trail runners, we are not, we're fairly homogenous, like compared to other groups, right? Like we're sort of, um, we're, you know, it's not exactly a, a true reflection or of, you know, human society, but trail running space. Um, there's a lot of sort of middle-aged white folks running in the mud, running in the woods, trying to stand out while also remaining part of the tribe. Um, Ergo, sort of we saw this explosion of things like the five panel hat, which was like a slight tweak on the trucker hat. But it was like, oh, yes, like this thing serves a function, but I'm going to I'm going to tweak the form of it just slightly so that I stand out just a little bit, not too much. Um, Increasingly, we're seeing the the bucket hat take up space in the A again, like there is a formal or a functional sort of like sun protective element to it. But again, we're looking for ways to just slightly tweak how we show up in the sport that signify, like, I'm a little different than the guy standing next to me. And I think that's really, really fascinating is that, like, I think in this, again, trail running being the culture I feel like I understand most is, like, there's this, like, tension that we're trying to hold. And, like, I find myself trying to hold it and, like, understand it in, in our community as well of, like, it's a it's like, we're all sort of like a, a wolf pack of lone wolves. <laughs> like we all really identify as individuals and being probably the quirkiest person we know together, you know? And I think that's something that makes the trail running space endlessly fascinating to me is this like thing of like, we're all together individuals.
0: Okay. Super interesting. So coming back to the direct to consumer phenomenon, when you were talking about it and yeah, you, know, you referenced in the article that Adidas' long-term strategy is to derive more and more of their revenue on a percentage basis from a direct-to-consumer channel rather than going through wholesale accounts. The interesting trade-off there that I don't know if you uncovered anything in your piece about is that specialty-running retail stores are sort of temples to the culture of running, yeah. right? And if you if you damage a relationship with a retail outlet, all of a sudden you become less relevant with a core consumer. Anything you wanna say about that?
1: I was just blown away that every single, I think almost every brand I interviewed, I was like well how important is run specialty and they were all like it's incredibly important here are the numbers um and that was sort of like a thing that i had not or a premise that i hadn't brought to the conversation which again always really interested in the things i am totally wrong about um running retail like i think i mean there's been a lot of sort of uh ink spilled on the internet about why running retail when a lot of other brick and mortars are not thriving in the in the new economy Running retail's chugging right along, which is really, really interesting. And I think that, you know, the industry as a whole has done a really great job of pivoting to meet new needs and of really centering people and community. And again, if you look at the success of a lot of these brands, they're mimicking or they're using maybe not mimicking, they're using that same playbook of really using people and community as sort of being tent poles to revolve around. So I, I think that like there's a really interesting connection between the indie brands and sort of these like legacy brick and mortar sort of stores. Um and I think like it's sort of I, yeah, I just think that that was a really fascinating thing that I hadn't originally thought would be as important as as my sources said it was.
0: Yeah, so I guess to add a finer point on it the sacrifice that brands are making when they're chasing better margin through a D2C channel is cultural relevance and a connection to the heart and soul of the community. It's so interesting. It's like, you know, 10 years ago, everybody thought the wave of the future was DTC. And now here we are just fully acknowledging the importance of specialty retail. And that's changed too, right? Like retailers have had to center community and culture and events more than just slinging product. Um, so, you know, I guess everybody's sort of probably triangulating towards a middle ground where everybody can thrive. And just to, yeah, I guess you use one of the lines that you put in the piece, you mentioned it earlier, that the big brands are using tools that small brands uh, had been successful with. And what you said is when Goliath picks up David's slingshot, it means the slingshot is working. Zoe, anything else on the brand conversation you wanna get to before we transition to the the media side of things? This is so Um fun.
1: Maybe to like uh, leave the tenor on an uplifting note before we talk about the demise of digital publishing. But I was really interested that almost everyone I spoke to was like, this is awesome. Things are growing and they're only going to get more interesting. Um, again, like the sport is booming more people who want more stuff and different stuff are coming into the sport every single day. And I think that we're going to increasingly see like these younger runners, these more diverse runners have needs that still aren't met by the current market. And I really, and all signs point to that driving a lot of innovation, a lot of new product. And I'm really excited to see what's sort of coming down the pipeline for our industry. And I think this was something I was pretty buoyed to see. It was like leaving things on an optimistic note of like, the, the game is changing. Um, new folks are shaking things up and the market is going to have to answer to that. But it's sort of in a way that's going to grow the pie. And so I'm excited for that. Yeah, what a great so point. Just be dressing cooler and cooler going a, into the future. A great note to
0: end that part of our conversation on is to our listeners, if there's a need that uh, feels unmet to you, maybe that's an opportunity to start your own brand and develop your own niche in this greater yeah. running ecosystem. The very first brand to ever believe in free trail, you guessed it, Gnarly Nutrition. Born in Salt Lake, Gnarly sets the standard when it comes to performance nutrition products. Of course, they have run Fueling Dialed with Fuel 2O, the collab orange drank flavor we formulated together. Gnarly also offers pre-workout blends and extremely dank protein mixes. I am going hard on the protein right now. I'm not gonna lie. This aging athlete and podcaster had an evaluation recently And there was one thing that was abundantly clear. I basically needed to double my protein intake. Enter. Gnarly Nutrition. I'm now smashing three scoops of the Gnarly Whey protein powder mid-morning every day and already feel way better charging into 2024. For those who are plant-based, Gnarly also offers a vegan option of the same protein powder. And to be honest, I can't tell them apart. So they're equally delicious and you'll have your selection there. Of course, free trail listeners get special discounts of 15% off the whole product offering, not just protein, but everything else. Visit gonarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15. gonarly.com Use code FREETRAIL15. Rourke Apparel, back for 2024. Such a cool brand. Born from a spirit of adventure and travel. Big with the surfing and action sports community. Rourke is now a major player here in trail running. You may remember I did an interview with their founder, Ryan Hitzel, at the running event. I love everything about this brand. Obviously, they make great lifestyle product, but the Run Amuck collection is truly great stuff. One thing I've enjoyed recently is the second wind jacket, the perfect windbreaker to bring out on the trail. Of course, I live here in the mild climates of Northern California, and this is my new favorite piece, the perfect extra layer for early morning dawn patrols on chilly winter days, but I could also see this being a great 12-month-a-year piece, a coastal windbreaker or the perfect lightweight layer for summer adventures in the Alpine. Wherever you're ripping, Rourke's got your back, and as a free trail listener, you can get 15% off, just go to rork.com, use promo code FreeTrail15. That's R-O-A-R-K.com, use code FreeTrail15. Transitioning to your other article. Again, it was entitled How Fan Service is changing running media, like we did for the brand conversation. First, I'd love for you to just tell me what made you want to write this piece before we get to the content itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, really the idea came from uh thinking about the marvel cinematic universe and the demise of marvel in the film industry and increasingly a lot of film critics were pointing at fan service and the feeling that these like marvel superhero movies um instead of trying to develop new interesting storylines kind of became increasingly pandering to the fan base and that struck a chord with me and I feel like there's a way in which that can sort of be um A a warning or an invitation to inquiry for for running media and for media generally, because I think it's been a really, or I don't think, data shows, all signs point to this being a really tough time in media. Um, I saw a statistic from Pointner that over 20,000 jobs in journalism have been lost in just the last calendar year. Um, That's a lot of folks laid off. Pitchfork just closed up shop. Sports Illustrated um, closed out, or Pitchfork got acquired by GQ, Sports Illustrated lost its licensing um, Huff Huff post shut down their news wing Buzzfeed shut down their news wing Vice is on life support Vox had huge layoffs. The Washington post had huge layoffs. So this is everything from like legacy media brands to a, a brand I know and love like pitchfork, which was this like, which I think is actually a pretty good um, analog for our conversation, a really core niche publication and Everyone is struggling in the current sort of media economy, and I was really curious to explore why.
0: Okay, so stepping back for those who aren't as in the weeds about the media and journalism industry, as congratulations you I, to you
1: and your yeah, mental health.
0: Right. Well, give a give sort of like a macro synopsis on how things have changed in the last ten or fifteen years, and maybe also how it mirrors Peter Abraham's thesis on nicheification.
1: Yeah, well, I think to uh, go all the way back to the days of of William Wordsworth. <laughs> I'm going to zoom. I'm going to do a very journalism thing, and I'm going to zoom entirely too far out. But um, I was, I've, I've been reading a collection of William Wordsworth's letters, and he, I was recently reading a letter that he wrote um, where he was hand-wringing about the fact that his small-town England newspaper was going to move to twice-a-week publication, and oh no, this signals the absolute demise of thoughtful, nuanced journalism. With twice-a-week the paper's coming, who has the attention? Who has the time? Um, So I do want to situate this in the context of like journalists being worried about the death of journalism is a very proud tradition in our industry. It's one of the things we do best, and And I'm in good company when I am scared as hell about the future of our industry. Thank you, Bill Wordsworth. Um, But I think, you know, most immediately what I look to, particularly in the world of sort of mid-sized and niche publications, are things like the rise of... um, I mean, essentially, like uh, sort of one of the macroeconomic things is um, increasingly advertising has been tough. The economy struggled during the or post pandemic, and things are you know starting to look up. But increasingly, advertisers have been really risk adverse, and now they're spending the majority of their money with just three companies: Meta, Google, and Amazon. Um, so, sort of middle sized companies like Outside Inc. Um, are sort of caught in the middle in a tough place where a lot of advertisers just aren't spending their money with us anymore. Um, Increasingly, a lot of the ways that folks consume media isn't by, I mean, it sounds like almost antiquated to like, I go to a homepage to look for the news. That's not how anyone consumes media. People find it on social. People send stuff. They subscribe to newsletters. The way that people consume this stuff is really changing. And our our industry has been not as agile in responding to it. Um, So sort of the like, the ways people find us is changing and the ways that we earn revenue is really dramatically changing. So that sort of makes for a challenging, uh, confluence of factors. So bring it back to the niche vacation because
0: we are seeing the slow death of a lot of, especially local newspapers, for example, yeah. but now that's unbundled to where, any guy can start a sub stack on the Denver Broncos, right? So instead of reading the column in the Denver Post about the Denver Broncos, you're subscribed to Larry's sub stack, right? Oh. And, and so, yeah, I don't know. Actually, I wish I would have pulled this because it's something I saw recently. Matthew Iglesias is somebody that I read a lot and I have read for a long time. And he said something about how wrote about this sort of changing journalism landscape and he was one of the founders of Vox and now he's a Substacker, Right. And he was like, yeah, but it's hard to argue that people are less informed, right. It's just unbundling and nicheifying. You just have to now excavate every niche. You don't just get it delivered to your doorstep every morning.
1: Totally. Which like in a lot of ways makes a ton of sense. Like if I'm interested in, you know, the Denver Broncos and like, um, uh, weird weather phenomenon. Why would I read the New York Times that doesn't answer to my specific needs and desires, but there are going to be thousands of sub stacks answer to those specific needs and desires. Some will be free. Some will be partially free with sort of like a paid version, some might be entirely paid. Um, and I think that inc- like increasingly media consumers are, again, sort of like what we're seeing with the indie running brands. Increasingly, folks want to consume media that speaks to their specific identity, their desires, and resonates with their values. So while a big, tent sort of journalistic operation might have made more sense for them a decade or two decades ago, now people want like, you know, instead of reading the environmental section of the New York Times, they're going to read the grist, where it has a perspective and a point of view and a value set that's very clear and resonates with who they are as a person as opposed to sort of this like objective um point of view that increasingly we're just not see res- we're not seeing resonate with audiences in quite the same way so i think like again and i think again like just to get to a, a different uh to Echo, like I'm I'm not here to be like, yes, legacy media has always done everything right. I think one of the major failures of legacy media is the um failure and reluctance to embrace a diversity of voice and perspectives. I think when you look at like who's really succeeding on Substack, social media Patreons, it's people that have really bright, bold perspectives, and it's a really diverse slate of creators. It's women, it's folks of color, it's people and populations that have not historically been served by legacy media. And so I am buoyed. To- see that these people are able to tell their stories on their terms in a way that makes sense for them and reaches audiences that are interested and in understand that perspective.
0: It's almost like David is picking up Goliath's tools That's now, right? right. <laughs> the internet is allowing <laughs> yes. for it. So, so you interesting. You how I just write the same piece over and over again? <laughs> yeah, right. Of the words. No, we're, tie- <laughs> we're tying everything together
1: it's here. Riffing on a thesis.
0: <laughs> and it is a timely moment for us to be having this conversation you just rattled off a bunch of the bad news that's been happening in newsrooms and media publications around the world and around the country we've sort of been talking around it speak specifically introduce the concept of fan service to the audience because yes. that's important so,
1: um this is this took me on a weird internet rabbit hole but originally fan service comes from japanese manga communities which is not a corner of the internet i traffic in frequently but essentially it referred to, but it's sort of been like zoomed out to refer to any time creators like intentionally tweak a storyline or the presentation of a creative work to appease a fan base. Um, you know, this is, or, you know, I or like sort of like continually regurgitate the same IP. I think we're seeing this a lot with like, with uh, Amazon Prime Video and like HBO Max like sort of resurrecting the like House of the Dragon IP and the Lord of the Rings IP because in this economy, like why would you bet on like a really expensive new thing when you can make a fairly secure bet on a thing that you know is already going to resonate with people? Is it as new and exciting and interesting? No, but is it going to be a better return on your dollar? Almost for sure. Um, So I think that like this is sort of the like macroeconomic factors that are driving this again are sort of a shrinking of where media, again, like using that as a really big tent term um, to lump me in with Amazon Prime video, (laughs) um, are sort of incentivized to be risk adverse. And I think out of that risk aversion comes fan service, which is sort of this like, give the people what they want media strategy.
0: So I'm going to read a quick passage from your piece, and, and then we'll use that to jump to the sort of next part of our conversation here. What you said is, however, creating content based on the whims, interests, and desires of the most vocal of your fans rarely results in the best storytelling or journalism, particularly at a time when running, trail running especially, is shifting and changing. So talk about the importance of actual journalism, especially in sectors that are in moments of transition.
1: Yeah, I think it's, you know, no secret to anyone who's even Googled trail running recently, but also anyone who, you know, especially tunes into this podcast that our sport is at a really interesting inflection point. And I'm less interested in sharing my, I guess, opinion or perspective on that inflection point beyond saying that it, I think it really involves stakeholders approaching these questions and situations with a keen eye and maybe sort of a humility around whatever preconceived notions we're bringing to these questions, Um, you know. I, I think specifically like the day before um there was a huge sort of um cultural conversation around UTMB I published a piece looking at the you the recently announced UTMB adaptive athlete policy and a lot of the adaptive athletes weren't loving it and I wanted to share their experience crafting the policy and their perspectives and I was kind of bummed to see that that really got buried in other UTMB storylines um and I think that People, to me, what that signifies is that there was sort of one acceptable storyline about what was happening at UTMB. And there was only one sort of like, way that people could or there was one sort of dominant narrative about how to relate to the story how to interact with this story and I think that it's really crucial that right now and like that wasn't a piece I wrote with like coming in with like oh I bet this is great I bet this isn't great I was just like I'm gonna talk to someone at UTMB and I'm gonna talk to some adaptive athletes and I'm gonna put those things in an article and think hard and see what comes up and I think that that is I mean I promise I'm not just trying to brag about a, a thing I did but I think that that sort of work is really, really important, and as seen by the sort of analytics, it's not doing amazing. Yeah, <laughs> like that's not our top hit. Spoiler alert of the week, you know, it was really buried under other perspectives, ideas, and stories that sort of played into more dominant cultural narratives. And I think that it just takes, you know, it, it, these things take a lot of time to do really good journalism to do really good storytelling, and they're not always going to result in like the things we want, again, like I I said that my indie brands piece came from the perspective of like, oh, I'm wrong about this thing. That's really interesting. Here's 3,000 words about why. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of the humility that I try to approach a lot of these stories with is like not assuming I'm right, not assuming I know really anything and trying to just go find stuff out and see what I can find out and not try to like distill it down into something that's really culturally acceptable that's gonna get me a bunch of likes and retweets. Um, And I really try to separate this good work away from what I know could earn praise, could earn attention and affection.
0: This episode is brought to you by Osprey. Super excited to be working with this iconic Colorado brand, the market leader in technical outdoor and travel packs, celebrating its 50th anniversary in 2024. One of my favorite podcasts of last year was the How I Built This with Osprey founder, Mike Fotenhauer. An incredible story of design and innovation, which remains a core part of Osprey's DNA to this day and that they're now focusing on the trail running category. You guys will absolutely love these trail running packs i promise the duro and dyna are the men's and women's options respectively with an extremely robust product selection for runs of all types quick lunch runs to multi-day suffer fests i've been rocking the six liter duro vest and absolutely love the fit the function the durability born in the san juans trusted by top athletes like tyler green and rachel drake You got to check out these products to make them even better. Osprey's full line are also sustainably crafted with blue sign approved, 100% recycled main body materials, again, making them a leader in the category. Head over to osprey.com to check it out. Grab a bag. That's osprey.com or chances are you can find Osprey products also at your favorite local specialty mountain shop or run store. Thanks so much to Osprey. So it speaks to a tension that I'm sure you feel though, internally, when you're determining the editorial direction of the outlets that you're working on at outside. So maybe explain those trade-offs for those who aren't in the weeds like us, because as you're saying, like an article about Jim's nutrition plan, for example, at UTMB is not going to get, or is going to get a lot more attention than the adaptive athlete policy at UTMB. How do you, how do you personally deal with that tension?
1: Totally. I mean, absent, you know, a a universal basic income, which would be incredible for our industry, we are beholden to the marketplace. And I think it is stupid and naive to pretend otherwise. And so like, I'm not trying to hold Myself or even anyone in our industry to a standard that doesn't exist, which would be doing this work in a vacuum. We're all beholden to the whims of the market and to the into the trade winds of the economy too. And I think that's really important to note that until we come up with a magical plan that separates us all from from capitalism, we're, we're we're performing these functions in a compromised system to begin with. And we do have to generate things that essentially we always call it sort of like keep the lights on content. For us, that's a lot of service content, which is sort of like training pa- plans, um, expert sort of like pieces, like s- stuff that teaches you how to do stuff, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, is how I like to explain service-oriented pieces. Those are a really big hit for us. And as a journalist, like it's less sometimes can be less interesting and fulfilling for me to be like, here are five different experts telling me how to do a threshold run sufficiently than like talking to adaptive athletes or exploring like um you know, different like environmental themes or something I'm always really interested in, exploring women and equity and diversity. Those things are really important, but if I only ever did that, we would be out of business yesterday. Um, I know we all like to believe that we're amazing, really conscious and savvy consumers, but the data would show otherwise. Whenever I write about the environment or write about women, that stuff is not what like pays the bills, unfortunately. So we have to do the stuff that does pay the bills in order to make space and make time for the stuff that is really important and the stuff that is hard to take time and space for, but that as journalists and writers, we all really, really believe in too. Um, So again, I'm not trying to like hold up like what I'm doing is like, and I have found the way to divorce myself from the economy. I am absolutely beholden to all of this. And I think that's why this piece probably feels pretty hand wringing to folks because I'm trying to take a really honest look at how I operate and how my team and our our sort of outlets operate in this in this really challenging economy, right? Like it's, and it's not unique to trail running. Like this is something we're all sort of muddling through as a culture.
0: And media is just like a notoriously hard business. There's really like yeah. two reliable ways to make money, advertising and subscription. I think you sort of make the argument that, subscription can exacerbate this fan service concept am i am i right in that elaborate um, on that a little I think bit. it
1: really i think it it so it depends so it depends on the scale of the publication i think when you look at so sort of um when you look at the data in the media industry the publications that are struggling the most are mid-sized publications i think that outside and runs sort of fall into that new york times and like other sort of like legacy places are doing Better. I don't think anyone's like 10 out of 10 thriving <laughs> in this economy, but like, you know, New York Times with its diversification, leaning into cooking games, a lot of uh, like really, really expanding their offerings so that the New York Times is kind of hardly even a newspaper at this point. It's like a crossword puzzle that also has environmental news. Um, That's a really savvy play in this market. And they're using a lot of the income from their games and from their recipes to subsidize the journalism. Um, I think, you know, outside kind of being in the middle, it's much more of a struggle. And I think that no matter where you get your money from, again, it can be compromised. We have a really strict... Editorial firewall, so that any advertiser who spends money with us can't communicate with editor, like can't influence editorial, and likewise, I can't influence advertisements. Um, That's really healthy—a separation of church and state. Even though it can be frustrating when I see an advertisement that I'm like, "That's cringe," or like, "Not loving that." Um, It's it's good because like that protects me as an editor. No shoe company can be like, "Hey Zoe, write about how great our shoes are." Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that sort of again, like there is no perfect model, but we have sort of this combination of subscription and advertising. And I don't, I I think there's downsides to leaning too heavily on either one or trying to cut off either one, right? Like whenever, if you cut off subscriptions, that sort of opens up a pathway down clickbait and over reliance on just getting eyes on the page and doing quantity over quality. Cause that's the best way to sort of hit your CTMs with advertising. Um, If you were to take advertising away and become beholden only to subscriptions, again, super like dependent on like how do people feel about the economy? Because one of the first things people will give up when they feel financially squeezed is their subscription to a recreation based outlet, right? Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not putting their kids through school. I'm not performing an essential service, even though I like to think I'm important and worthy, like I'm not essential. And that's, again, like we see subscriptions sort of teeter when the economy is, I mean, similar with advertising, but in the same way, it's sort of like you see sort of overlapping different seismic needles. I think that when you get down to like the smaller scale, um, people can become very beholden to, um, subscriptions. And I think that this is something, again, like I is not at all unique to the trail space. I definitely, or to the run space, I see it play out there, but I think you really see it even with like political journalism. Like why would I read an objective New York times sort of approach to something when I can subscribe to a Substack that speaks exactly to my current leanings and this just going to validate how I feel. Um, and I think we've really seen this with increasingly, like, especially in the political tenor of a lot of, um, coverage in our world is that things become increasingly sort of extreme on either end of the spectrum because it doesn't pay to be moderate and it doesn't pay to be nuanced. It pays to enrage people to make people fear and it pays to make people feel happy and comfortable and something that's in the middle doesn't really do that. So people are increasingly incentivized to have like really takey newsletters and to really just sort of like, find something that works and then do that. But to the 11th degree, when they find something that strikes a chord with their audience. So like, I I mean, I feel like you can see this in like debates as like, I know this, it's not totally silly, but like there's, a lot of like, um, aerobic deficiency syndrome is something that I see people really enjoy fighting about on the internet and creating sub stacks and podcasts around. And if I released a podcast that was like, I have two experts respectfully debate this concept, no one's going to listen to that. They want to listen to one person go off about why aerobic deficiency syndrome absolutely doesn't exist. And if you believe in it, you're a fool. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the, the whole political media thing really does drive the point home about the dangers of fan service, doesn't it? Because as we all know now, yeah, you, they, you basically go to a place to get fed what you want to hear, not necessarily to learn anything there? I don't know if there's anything else you want to elaborate on there, draw the the, the line towards I think I'm a pretty
1: smart media consumer. And I, again, am not above any of this. I will always find myself reading opinion newsletters or listening to podcasts that I'm like, oh man, I'm really vibing with this. I should sort of check myself on why and what I lose and what I gain from engaging with this media. Um, So again, I'm not here to like point Fingers. I think the reason that I'm really compelled by this argument I make is because I feel very complicit in it, and I just oh. want to invite all of us to think about what we make and what we read and how that shapes our world. I too
0: feel complicit. That's why I wanted to have this conversation. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, and what like,
1: I, and, and, uh, yeah. I, I'm. I'd be curious how you navigate this because I think, like, again, like I feel really excited by the subscriber model because I like being accountable to my audience. Yeah. How do I do that in a responsible way? And I'm curious how you navigate that with a uh, free trail. Like how do you how do you think about like again, like creating like you do have I'm trying to not use the word fan, because I don't want to like lump you into the phenomenon we're discussing here. No, I how, very
0: much mm, think it's fair. I think it's fair. And so I'll how give do you-, you... Na-
1: But like, how do you navigate this? Because like, I don't, I don't think you're complicit in the like most extreme examples of this. And I'm curious how, like, again, how do you have a viable business that,
0: how do you do it? Yeah, well, this is why I wanted to have this conversation with you. And I guess to pull back the curtain for our listeners, when I sent you the email is <laughs> something to the effect of- It'd be fun to talk to a, a, you know, see what a generic sports dude can learn from a trained <laughs> journalist. And certainly what with what you do at Trailrunner and at Outside, it, it's more journalism where free trail is more entertainment, I would say, right? They're like, therefore more fan service. Like I'm not a trained journalist. I am a fan. And frankly, I can't afford to pay journalists. So like- I also try not to be a, you know, just like an engagement farming machine that's, you know, capitalizing on provocative topics in the sport. I try and be, you know, tasteful about what conversations I engage in and try to be unifying and not divisive and stuff. And obviously we all know that division and provocative topics do drive more attention and can be beneficial To media businesses in terms of just like making, establishing your brand and probably driving additional revenue. And so I do feel the tension, right? And our business model does rely on both advertising and subscription, but it's not subscription in the same way that outsides is like ours is more of a community model rather than a, you know, a a content based, you know, um, you know, something that's supportive of a journalism infrastructure, if you know what I mean.
1: Right. But I think that that community is like a value proposition outside of the like, oh, this guy is regurgitating exactly what I want to hear all the time. And so like, I think any ability to diversify your offering sort of helps get get us all out of that space, right? Like if all you were doing was writing a newsletter or putting out a podcast, that's like the more the more different streams you open up, I think that that sort of opens up complexity. And I mean, obviously we're seeing bundling being a really big thing in the media space. That's something outside does. Increasingly streamers are doing it in a way that I think is hilarious because they're basically just reinventing cable.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> I was going to bring that up. Like this whole new <laughs> sports bundle <laughs> yeah. is basically a reinvention I'm like, oh, of cable. Netflix
1: is just sports now.
0: <laughs> but it's it's sort of like to what we were talking about earlier where with the retail versus D2C concept where everybody thought that D to C was going to be the wave of the future. And now, Retail has never been more relevant, at least at the grassroots level. And now everybody thought that cable in the bundle was dead when it comes to, you know, television and streaming. But really, it's just a streaming version of cable (laughs) that's (laughs) reemerging, isn't it?
1: And I mean, again, when you see the big guys pick up the tool of the little guy, that's interesting. You should pay attention. If you look increasingly at what outside is doing, using social first storytelling, we hired influencers to help with our coverage of the Olympic trials at outside, right? Like we are leaning into the tools that are actively dismantling our industry. That's interesting. You know, like what is that going to lead to? Cause like, I don't see increasingly influencers being like, Oh my gosh, legacy media was so right. We should take forever to fact check this stuff and include multiple sources. They're like, screw that. I'm going to do my thing. And legacy media is like, oh, that's interesting. How can we use that? Actually, even dating back to my days at NPR, I did a training when I was an NPR journalist on how to share more of my personality online and on social media. And it made me very uncomfortable because I kind of had this space of like, I thought all I had to do was like, be capable and show up and do my job. And I didn't have to be likable and fun online. But it doesn't matter how good a journalist you are if you're not good at disseminating your story, if you're not good at storytelling around your story. Um, A, as professional storytellers, that would hopefully give us an advantage to some extent. But B, there's also disadvantages because a lot of the stories I want to tell are not super popular. Women, environment, equity and inclusion... Very important. I know we all know they're important. But again, if you saw the data, you would know how vulnerable a space that is to lean into. Um, so, again, like increasingly we're seeing legacy pick up the tools of the little guy. The Atlantic leaned huge into subscriber only newsletters outside is going to do a similar thing. Um are like the big guys can only survive when they have the same sort of agility and accessibility that we're seeing like influencers, folks like, uh, I'm not saying you are an influencer. I I w I don't know how you would describe what you do actually, so but you're I'm not
0: pleased. going to offend me at all. You know, I'm as self-critical like, it, it feels
1: inaccurate to call you an influencer. Um, a new media startup. Does that sound? That sounds like, fair. Yes. A nonsense word. Yes. Great. We're generic sports dude, sports.
0: a self-described yeah, sports generic dude. sports dude. But
1: like, We have at Outside Run, we're increasingly leaning into a a voices column, which is trying to better spotlight like folks who, you know, haven't had their brains addled by years of J school and Internet education to just be themselves and talk about how they identify with the sport. So I, I think, again, like we're not seeing the industry lean away from these things. And I think that there's like going towards the thing that scares me going towards the thing that makes me uncomfortable or is interesting, I think is always where like the most interesting creative work is going to be. And also it's just the only way to survive.
0: Yeah. Wow. What an awesome convo. As we wind down, I'd really love for you to tell us a little bit about some of the things that you're working on, because I know you're now involved in a, a new like uh, streaming yeah. show, yeah. and I know your your this out new outside run platform is relatively new. If there's mm-hmm. anything you want to talk about there, and also your yeah. your burgeoning stand up comedy career. Yeah. Bring all those things full circle. Yeah,
1: <laughs> in my free time, um, when I'm not uh, bemoaning the death of digital publishing, no, it's, it's we're thriving. Um, so actually, we do have a really cool new platform at Outside called Outside Run. And this came from us really looking at the data, looking at who we were speaking to and noticing that runners um, are really coming to us for a more holistic vision of running. Um, previously, I had been managing both trail runner and women's running. And siloing those things just didn't feel right. And the data was showing us that it wasn't vibing with our audience. Um, I'm really passionate about covering women in sport from all perspectives. And ghettoizing women's coverage wasn't working for our strategy. So I'm really excited that we're now combining the best of like women's coverage, off-road coverage, and we're elevating it to a unified platform that allows us to better sort of put all of our resources together. So rather than trying to solely attend to all of these different streams, we're able to sort of create a more interesting, holistic and dynamic vision of what it means to be a runner. Most people don't show up to run as just a trail runner just a woman just a road runner so we wanted to create a platform that speaks to all of those identities all of those ways of running in a single place rather than sending people to trail running for one thing and then if you want to get a training plan you got to go to outside and if you want a really cool culture piece you're going to women's running um we're putting it all in the same place but we are still being really really intent like i'm not going anywhere i'm still working there i'm still writing and editing so don't worry trail coverage is safe in my hands we we actually you know Abby Levine has been working with us. She's incredible. Really like she gets the sport in ways that are just like rain man esque to me. Um, So I think, I think it's really exciting and essentially just helps us do a better job at our job and reach more people. Um, secondarily, I was just renewed for a second season on the outside show, which I'm really, really excited about. Um, plot twist, stuffy old journalist bemoaning the death of the industry pivots slightly into TV. It's really exciting to be able to use sort of my journalistic skills to make, Interesting personality driven TV. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, actually, when I was training for Western States, I really messed up my Achilles tendon. And when I couldn't run, I started doing stand-up and improv. And it made me realize how much I missed performing and how much I love doing comedy. And I love sort of leaning into that side of my creative life. Um, And that led to someone outside seeing a standup tape that I had done and recommending that I audition for this TV show. And now we're going for season two. So you can find us on watch.outsideonline.com. It's going to be a fun time. Season two starts in April. So I'm really stoked for that.
0: Hell yeah, man. So many good projects. So many good things. (laughs) I guess in closing, we talked about it at the beginning, but maybe what else are you excited about in life? Any literature that you're pursuing (laughs) right now or any uh, races that you're training for that people can look out for?
1: I'm training for the Leadville 100, stacking those winter bricks. I'm really stoked. Um, That race has kicked my ass before and I can't wait for it to kick my ass again. Hopefully I'm more receptive to the ass kicking than I was (laughs) last time. Um, I just love running hundreds in the mountains. And I think a quote that I read recently that I feel like really, it was intended to be about writing, but I feel like also has sort of like is resonant for training Um, from writer Nick white. He said that writing is just like white collar brick laying. And I kind of feel like that's what my, my winter training has been just like, not very glamorous, just laying some bricks out here. Everything is the same in art, in
0: sports, (laughs) in career, it's all bricklaying and becoming more receptive to ass kickings, isn't
1: it? I know. I wish that there was like a hack or like a Snapple cap takeaway I could give people that wasn't out from bricklaying, but it's just bricklaying. All there is.
0: Lay those bricks, Zoe. Thanks so much for coming on the pod. I always love talking to you. I also always love reading what you write. Keep doing it.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Zoe Rome, the one and only, holy smoke, she is so good. We need to do at least a quarterly update with Zoe, I feel like. Free Trail Pro members, please do let me know what you thought. Jump in Slack, share your feedback. For those who are not members, boy, are you missing out on the millions of perks inherent in a Free Trail Pro membership, including one critical and timely event, the Free Trail After Party at the Big Alta this weekend. That's right invite only for free trail pro members and our extended network only check out the membership at freetrail.com. we would love to have you part of it speaking of which again you must tune in to the big alta this weekend mountain outpost youtube channel trail gating on friday our preview show 50k on saturday 28k on sunday they're shorter races they won't take your whole weekend but they are gonna be absolutely awesome link in the show notes here Big thank you to our sponsor, Speedland, RunSpeedland.com. Use code FREETRAIL10 for 10% off the brand new GSPDX and the dwindling number of pairs. Gnarly Nutrition, gnarly.com, Use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off. Osprey Packs, leading pack brand globally. Check them out at osprey.com or at your favorite local retailer. Finally, Rourke Apparel, rourke.com. Use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off this great, running and lifestyle apparel brand. Thanks everybody for listening. See you on YouTube this weekend. Until then, love you so much. Bye-bye.